You may not know this about Martin Luther, the great reformer, but he was essentially an outlaw for the gospel. He was an outlaw for the gospel. You see, Luther's harsh criticism of the Catholic Church uh, did not win him many friends. Uh, this did, did not sit well uh, with a lot of powerful people. And so they chased Luther. At, at one time, he had to take on an alias, Junker George. This is alias. I think I'm going to change that to my Twitter name, Junker George. Um, Another time, he had to disguise himself as a woman. Another time, uh, he had to grow a large beard, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Uh, don't you think so, Keith? That's pretty neat. I like the large beard. I wish you would have kept it. Um, he had to grow a large beard. Another time, he hid in the Wartburg Castle. And what's neat about the Wartburg Castle is actually you can go there today. You can visit the Wartburg Castle today. Uh, and what's neat about that castle and why thousands of people visit it still every year, is that it is in that castle that Martin Luther wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So you can go and you can visit the room where Martin Luther wrote that hymn. And Martin Luther also did something really special in the Wartburg Castle, and that is he translated the Bible into the common language of the people so that the common people did not have to rely on the Pope to receive the Word of God, but so that they could read it for themselves. And you can visit the Wartburg Castle. Then one thing neat uh, about the castle, I, I plan on going at some point in my life. I haven't been there today, but I know there's, there's something neat about that room. See, there's, there's ink stains on the floor and on the walls. Do you know that? It's neat. So there's, there's ink stains there. And the legend has it, uh, legend has it that those ink stains are there because as Martin Luther was translating the Bible, he would throw ink at the devil. He said that the, the devil was attacking him on all sides while he was trying to translate the Bible into the common language. And so he would throw the little inkwells at the, at the devil that was trying to disrupt his work. And so now we don't know if that story is true or not. Uh, but one thing is for certain, one thing we do, do know that is true is that Martin Luther encountered intense opposition. Intense opposition. Uh, both from Roman authorities and from Satan himself. And today we're going to read about another great reformer uh, who also encountered intense opposition. Now, in the previous chapters of Nehemiah, Israel's enemies focused hard on trying to take out the whole people of God. And that didn't work, like, at all. So here in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, they've shifted their strategy. And now what they're trying to do is to cut the head off the snake. They're trying to take out the leader. They're going after Nehemiah. And so let's turn there right now to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah is right there in the, in the middle of your Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, it's no big deal. It'll be on the screens. And also it'll be, uh, there's some sermon notes and the scripture for tonight at ljc.life. ljc.life. You can click on the sermon notes there and you'll have the Bible verses and you'll have some notes on the sermon also. So uh, we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 6. And we're going to go through the whole chapter tonight, but so instead of reading it all at once, we'll just kind of take it bit by bit, okay? So um, if you're there at Nehemiah chapter 6, let's get this out of the way. Let's just, let's just get this out in the open. If you try to do anything for God, and I mean anything for God and His kingdom, you will face 
fierce opposition. Fierce opposition. Uh, And one thing that's super neat, I think, about this chapter that we're going to read is it reveals four very common schemes of our enemy, the devil. It reveals four common schemes he uses against us because he uses them here against Nehemiah. So I think we can learn a lot from this. Let's dive in. So the first scheme that we see here that the enemy uses against us is fear. Fear. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Nehemiah says, uh, They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13. Nehemiah says, He had been hired to intimidate me, so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And now let's look at verse 19. Verse 19. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. Do you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to strike fear in the heart of Nehemiah and the people. And so how does Nehemiah deal with these fear tactics? Nehemiah battles the fear of the enemy with a greater fear of God. You see, by fearing God above all others, you and I can endure all the fear tactics the enemy throws at us. If you remember, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Now, this doesn't mean that we live in terror of God, okay? That's not what the fear of God is. Uh, The fear of God is simply to live in awe of Him, to revere Him. It is to know who God is and just respond appropriately. To know who God is and to respond appropriately. Okay, but who is God? Who is God? Nehemiah told us back in chapter 4 when he said, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. One of the reasons that we walk around intimidated and in fear is that our God is too small. Our God is too small. Often, you see, when we think of God, we think of God like we think of other creatures. Uh, And that God just must be a bigger, better, and badder version of those created things. Wrong. Wrong. God is bigger and greater than anything we can dream of in our wildest imaginations. Theologians define God as the maximally great being. The maximally great being. What does that mean? Well, it means that God has every great making property to the maximum extent. To the maximum extent. So what are great making properties? Well, they're anything that makes a person or a being great. Anything. And so it doesn't take long to think of a few examples. Knowledge is one. Wouldn't you say that having knowledge is a great making property? Well, if that's true, then God has limitless knowledge. There is no end to the knowledge of God. Power is another example, right? 
Wouldn't you, wouldn't you assume that power is a great making property? Well, if that's true, then God has limitless power. Limitless power. Universes, galaxies, heavens, and spirit realms are all created by one word from God. Another example, of course, is love. Love is a great making property, which means God has limitless love. If you had 10,000 years to sit and contemplate it, you wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of understanding God's love for you. Any great making property you could think of, God has that property to infinity. To infinity. No creature can conceive of the greatness and the awesomeness of God. You can't even come close. You see, the difference between God and a slug and God and an archangel is the same. It's the same. Because God is infinitely greater than everything. He's infinitely greater than everything. We serve a God who by his death and resurrection conquered every force of darkness in hell. This is why John Newton wrote, "'Tis grace hath taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Did you ever catch that? "'Tis grace hath taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." You see, grace teaches us the gospel. And the gospel teaches us the right person to fear. The only one we have to fear is the one who conquered death, hell, and the grave. Who else could we fear? <laughs> who else should we fear? No, you see, grace teaches us who we should fear. And then grace relieves all our fears of everything else. Okay, number two. So number one, one scheme of the devil is fear. The next scheme we're going to look at is deception. Deception. Uh, you see, the enemies of Israel tried to lure Nehemiah away from the work on the wall. Nehemiah was trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem who had, that had been broken down, and he was close to finishing the work. And so something the enemies tried to do is they're like, well, he's not... He's doing a really good job at this wall-building thing. We need to get him away from the wall. So let's look at verse 1. This is what they tried to do. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, it says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Jeshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time uh, I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. They were scheming to harm me. So you see, the mission is almost complete. The wall is almost built. And what are the enemies trying to do? They're trying to trap Nehemiah. They're trying to get him away from the work. Uh, they're trying to get him to come to a political meeting on the plain of Ono. Uh, which, this had to be tempting for Nehemiah. I mean, legitimately, he'd been working like a dog 
for weeks and weeks and weeks on this wall facing intense opposition day and night. Uh, you know, if you remember, he said he couldn't even sleep. Neither him nor his men could even sleep. They had to stand guard, you know, 24-7. They had to work with one hand and keep a, a hand on their sword, <laughs> the other hand on their sword the whole time because they, they could be attacked at any moment from the enemy. So, the, so this, uh, the plain of Ono was actually a gorgeous place, a gorgeous place, a beautiful and restful place. And, and it would have gotten Nehemiah away from the work and would have given him a much-needed break. It would have. Uh, so it had to be tempting for him. And it had to also be tempting because it would have gotten Nehemiah in relationship with very powerful political leaders. It would have gotten him, uh, in, uh, he would have gotten a chance to rub el elbows with the big dogs. So it had to be tempting. But Nehemiah immediately saw that they were trying to divert him from the mission of God. Now there are a lot of things that can distract you and I from the mission of the church. Uh, even good things, even very good things can distract us. You see, the church's mission, and when I say the church, I mean the worldwide church. We read it every Sunday to close our services, right? So the worldwide mission, uh, the mission of the worldwide church is to make disciples who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is essentially the mission of the church in one sentence. To make disciples who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, Anything that the church does that doesn't match up with that mission is a distraction. It's a distraction, and it's actually a plan of the devil. It's a plan of the devil. So if anybody comes to me with a ministry idea, I welcome all ministry ideas, but the first thing I'm going to ask you is, how does this idea contribute to our mission? To make disciples who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How does it contribute? Now, if it helps our mission, we're doing it. <laughs> probably. We're probably doing it if it helps us do that. If it hurts our mission, no matter how good of an idea it might seem, we ain't doing it. We can't. We must stay on mission. You see, we can't do everything. Uh, there's a, a little phrase they taught us in college, that Bible college, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. If everything is mission, then nothing is mission. We must be laser-focused on the, the great commission that we have been given. That is our task, and we must stay laser-focused on it. And we see here that Nehemiah refuses to get sidetracked on the specific mission he has been given at this particular time, which was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah says, oh no, to oh no. Oh no to oh no. I know it's not funny. It's okay. Uh, verse 3, he says, So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on. You can, you can take your own no and do whatever you want with it. I ain't going. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? So you see Nehemiah, he's laser focused on the task at hand. Okay, uh, the third scheme of the enemy that this text shows us is slander. Slander. Let's look at verses 4 through 8 together. Verses 4 through 8. Uh, four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, quote, 
It is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Now, uh, this report seems very official, doesn't it? Seems very official. Uh, and, you know, apparently there's this report going around among the nations that is slandering Nehemiah. And, you know, he uses all these fancy names. You know, Sanballat uses all these fancy names to, to really sell this to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's like, okay, cool. Uh, show me the report. It's basically what he's saying. Show, oh, oh, really? There's a report going on around? Show it to me. Show it. Oh, y'all ain't got no report, do you? No. You made this whole thing up. You made it up. And so you're slandered, you're lied about, what do you do? I know what I do. I immediately go to Facebook. <laughs> defend my honor. What did Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah does what he always does. He prays. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. And it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. So notice that Nehemiah didn't pray for the situation to change. He didn't pray for these little boogers to go away. No. He didn't pray for the situation to change. He prayed for strength to handle the situation. Give me strength. So when you, I think this is just a tremendous example for us, uh, that when you are slandered, when you are lied about, first of all, pray. That's awesome. Well, how do you pray? Pray for strength. And pray for love toward those who curse you and lie about you. It's hard to do that. It's, uh, I would say it's virtually impossible uh, to do that on your own strength, is to pray for those who curse you. And, uh, and so... Uh, I think Nehemiah is a terrific example. To, hey, let's pray for the strength to do that. Hey, Lord, I don't have the strength to pray for these people who are cursing me and lying about me. Give me the strength. Give me the strength to do that. Because uh, in me, I want to attack them back. I want to run to Facebook and slander them. So, Lord, please help. Help me. Give me the strength. Okay, and lastly, the last scheme of the enemy is... Religious nonsense. Religious gobbledygook. Uh, what do I mean? Well, the devil loves to use religious leaders to disrupt the work of God. And I mean, he loves it. <laughs> he loves to use religious leaders against us. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10. Uh, Nehemiah says, One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delia, son of Mahadabel, 
who was shut in, in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. Now, this is a pretty intense warning, isn't it? Nehemiah men are coming to kill you. I think that might be the last straw for me. I think it would. I think I would take my ball and go home at that point. But not Nehemiah. <laughs> not Nehemiah. He senses that this claim is false. And how does he do that? How does he sense that the claim is false? Because this prophet, this quote-unquote prophet came to him and said, let us meet inside the temple. You catch that? Let us meet inside the temple. And this is a dead giveaway for Nehemiah. Why? Because Nehemiah knows he is not allowed in the temple. He's not allowed in the temple. The Old Testament is clear on that. The Old Testament is crystal clear on that. So, Nehemiah, know, Nehemiah knows that this quote-unquote prophet is not from God. Because his advice is contradictory to God's word. It's contradictory to God's word. Look at verses 11 through 13. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So uh, this right here, folks, is how everyone in the room tonight can spot a false teacher. You don't need my help. In fact, you need to call me out. You have the ability to call me out. And you, you know what it is? It's God's word. Nehemiah knew this guy was a phony because what he said was contradictory to God's word. Now, there is a ton of goofy and dangerous preaching out there. A ton of it. And so what you hear from any preacher, including me, needs to be judged against this right here. You're going to hear some goofy preaching that you're going to catch right away, but some other, some other stuff, it sounds pretty good at first. It sounds like wisdom. It sounds like it it might be something God would say. So what we need to ask every time, we need to be very, very careful. We need to ask, but what does God's word say? But what does God's word say? Because, yeah, there's some goofy, ridiculous stuff out there that's obvious to catch. But then there's some stuff out there that's not so obvious. And we have the ability to judge what we hear, though. Because we have the concrete word of God to judge everything that is said from any pulpit. Scripture is our anchor. It keeps us from being swayed to and fro by false teaching. 
Now, not shockingly, Nehemiah responds to this last-ditch effort of his enemies with prayer. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Nehemiah lives with a great vision of God. He trusts that if need be, God will take vengeance on his critics so that he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to run to Facebook. He doesn't have to... Uh, backbite and talk junk about them. He doesn't have to do any of that. He doesn't even have to give them one thought. All he needs to say is one prayer. That's all that he needs. Nehemiah is not consumed with the words of his critics. He's consumed with the words of his God. Nehemiah fears God, not men. And that means Nehemiah's enemies were unable to take him down. They were unable to derail the rebuild. Look at verse 15. 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Now, this is a little anticlimactic, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, come on now. This is an epic story. This should, this should easily be sent to Hollywood and a movie be made out of This is incredible. Just this whole situation, right? The walls of Jerusalem have been burned to the ground. Uh, Jerusalem is a sitting duck for its enemies. Uh, Nehemiah risks his life to ask his pagan kings uh, to leave so he could go rebuild the walls. Oh, and by the way, for his pagan king to pay for it. Uh, Nehemiah then travels a thousand miles to Jerusalem to lead the rebuild. There he faces intense opposition to the work day and night, day and night. And how does he conclude the story? So we completed the wall. <laughs> this is a very man-like way to wrap this up, isn't it? How was your day, honey? Good. What'd you do at work today? Nothing. We finished the wall. We finished the wall. That's what Nehemiah says. Now, why is Nehemiah so nonchalant? We got one verse that wraps up the work on the wall. Why is he so nonchalant about his completion of this incredible task? Well, I think it's because Nehemiah knows where the credit goes. He knows where the credit goes. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. You see, Sanballat was right in verse 7. Sanballat was right in verse 7. There is a king in Judah. It's just not the king Sanballat thought. The real king in Judah 
is the King of all kings. The Lord of all lords. And He is running this show. He's running this show. Anytime the people of God set out on the mission of God, God Himself does the work through us. God Himself does the work. He doesn't say just go for it and good luck. No. We read it every Sunday, don't we? Every Sunday to close our services. What's the last verse? Yeah. And I will be with you. Even to the end of the age. Yes, I've called you to an incredible task. I've called you to an incredible thing. To take my gospel to every corner of the earth. But you won't be alone. I will be with you. Every step of the way. <laughs> I'll be with you every step. And I think if you wanted to put a song, if you wanted to put a song to the first six chapters of Nehemiah, I think a good one would be, Great is thy faithfulness. I love that hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. God is the hero of this book, not Nehemiah. And Nehemiah would be the first one to tell you that. Nehemiah is not the hero. Nehemiah is simply a tool God uses to bring about his promises. And what is it that he promised? All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised to send a seed of a woman to crush the head of the snake. Using Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, God is ensuring that 400 years after Nehemiah, one will come from the seed of a woman in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. And he will crush the head of our enemy. The Old Testament is a story of an unfaithful people and an ever-faithful God. And in due time, the faithful God will send his faithful son. And through his life, death, and resurrection. He would redeem and restore not only Israel, but all mankind. So, the key to any rebuild you attempt, and really the key to your entire life, is not trying to live like Nehemiah. It's believing in the one Nehemiah prepared the way for. It's believing in the one Nehemiah prepared the way for. John 6, 28 and 29. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe. To believe in the one he has sent. Let's pray together. Father.
We believe in Jesus, the one you sent. And where our belief fails us, help our unbelief. Restore our belief, Father, in your Son. For we know that he is the source of all of our strength, all of our joy, all of our peace, all of our contentment, all of our energy for this life. We know that it only comes from Jesus. And so, Father, we need, we need your help. It is so easy for us to be distracted, not only by the things of this world, but, but even, the, even these religious tasks can get in the way. Help us to focus solely on your Son in belief and in joy and in happiness. Look to him and him alone. Father, as life's journey attempts this rebuild, we need your help. We need your help. And we know that we have it. And so what we are asking for is eyes to see and ears to hear that truth. It's just so easy for us to be distracted. And so we pray that you would bring us back Bring us back to just the simple faith. The simple faith that we had to begin this journey. Because we know it is that simple faith that will sustain us throughout this journey. Bring us back. Bring us back, Father, to Jesus.